is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. And I'm Hannah Wolf. This week I'll be reading two stories by Dorothy DeCourcy with her husband John DeCourcy, uh, Don't Don't Mention It, and Founding Foundling on Venus. I'll also be playing contemporary contemporaneous music from 1946 when Don't Mention It was published. Don't Mention It was actually the first book published by the duo in 1946, and Foundling on Venus was their last in 1954. They published 21 short stories in those eight years. Literally, I couldn't find anything about the couple other than their publishing record and that they resided in Vista, California and Seattle, Washington. In the background, we've been listening to Etude in C and Etude in A by Boshlav Martuni in 1946 and performed by Rudolf Furkutsny. First, I'll be reading Don't Mention It by Dorothy DeCourcy and John DeCourcy, which was first published in Amazing Stories, Volume 20, Number 2, in May of 1946. Due to time constraints, the short story has been shortened.
Don't Mention It by John and Dorothy DeCourcy. The drums began to beat again, that queer, uneven beat, never the same, always banging, never quite rhythmical or arrhythmical. The man listened to the beat with only half his mind, the other half in regret, fury, anguish, a potpourri of emotion, sought to shut out the discord. It was no use. Horns, violins, piccolos, bassoons took up the refrain. If only he could make some sense of the music. If only he could distinguish a semblance of a melody, a few bars even, it might be bearable. He straightened up from his work. Just one more day, he moaned. Just a few hours without that hellish sound in my brain, and I'll be finished. That's what he wanted most in this world. Time. Just a little time. He had reached a new milestone in science. Almost. Another day, a few more hours, and the earth would yield her secret of gravity to him. Another day, a few more hours, and the chains which had held men to the earth for millions of years would be broken. The eternal stars would be his neighbor, the universe his town, the galaxy his country. The secret was quite simple, the machine even simpler. It lay before his hands, almost complete. The man rushed out of the laboratory. It would be useless to try to work with that din pounding in his brain. He walked rapidly through his house, gathering up his coat and hat as he went out the front door. Outside in the sun, the demented symphony diminished to a point where thought was possible. He heaved a deep sigh of relief. It had been three days since this started. The sound in his mind were always tolerable when he got away from home and the laboratory. His breath came easier now, and his muscles lost their tenseness. His tall, gaunt frame straightened, and his sensitive fingers relaxed. He was distinguished in appearance. His skin was dark, his cheekbones high. His liquid brown eyes were set in deep sockets. His nose was thin, aquiline, with a prominent hump. The face was strikingly like that of Abraham Lincoln. The man's soul was strikingly like that of Abraham Lincoln. He was not a famous scientist, but he could be and would be if the pounding, shrieking racket that only he could hear would stop. Another day, a few more hours separated him from greatness. Another day, a few more hours separated man from the stars. That was Keith Eckert in 1959, a nobody, a low-salaried worker in a radio-television repair shop. But within was Keith Eckert, savant extraordinary. 
Within was also a man, racked by fear and torn by conflicting emotions. He knew he was going insane, but was fearful of even putting that realization into concrete thought. Yet, in this extremity, his only desire was to complete his machine, to give mankind the key to new achievement, while he still had the wits to give it. That one thought was uppermost. There really was no other explanation for his condition other than insanity. Keith knew this. He knew even the name. Paranoia, it was called. Yet still, he wouldn't admit the truth, even to himself. That was too much to expect. As he walked along the street in the slanted sunshine, the clashing dissonance began to die away. Calmly, emotionlessly, Keith waited for the voice. For the voice always came after the music. He had learned, in these last three terrible days, to act as though nothing were happening. No flicker of emotion betrayed the tortured hell of his mind. Rather, his face was benign, almost saintly. Nobody knew but Keith, and he meant that no one should know, ever. The music died on a sour note. Then the calm voice started to speak, ringing in the space between his ears. The voice, cultured, well-modulated, dulcetly soft, infinitely penetrating, aggravatingly inane. You have been listening to our Noonday Concert Hour, presenting today Symphony Number no. 1,479,263 and one-half by Johann Sebastian Jones. When you hear the sound of the bomb, the time will be exactly 1 million B.C. Are you quick on your feet? Or are your reactions slow? Remember, there are only two kinds of men, the quick and the dead. If you don't want to be the dead, be sure to eat a pound of Dr. Goebel's quicksand every day. On and on it went, until Keith wished he could die just to shut out the sound. Three days of this was all he could stand. He had to stop this somehow. He forced his dragging feet to turn him towards town. He reached the streetcar line eventually and managed to seat himself inside. The voice stopped talking. It just insanely chattered, clickety-clack, 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 in perfect rhythm with the moving car. Keith found himself standing before a door. From somewhere, the sound of a simple melody intruded into the mad monologue that Keith heard with his mind. He was before a little church, gray, run down and poor. It was from there that the melody came. Keith walked up the steps. As he did, the voice rose, almost to a scream. 
Get away! Get away! Get away! Get away! Keith was through the door of the little church. For a moment, the relief was endurable. The voice was gone. Tears of gratitude for this respite trickled down Keith's cheeks. He sank very weak into a pew and leaned his forehead on the back of the seat in front of him. He began to cry, sobbing unashamed. The light touch of a hand on his shoulder made him raise his head. A slight, fatherly, white-haired man stared down at him. Is your grief that intolerable? The little man asked. For some reason, Keith found himself pouring out his troubles, unburdening his aching heart. There was something about this man that made Keith want to talk to him. When he finished, the little man was very grave and silent. Keith was suddenly very mortified and ashamed. I'd better go, he stammered. He rose to leave, but the white-haired man restrained him. Don't dash off like this, the little man protested. You haven't given me a fair chance to help you. That's my business, you know, helping people. Keith sank back into his pew again. Do you think you can help me? Keith pleaded. I can sure try, the little man smiled. By the way, what is your name? Keith told him. The little man nodded his head. Hmm, that is a good name. Mine's Joshua Whitaker. There's something about Joshua Whitaker that made Keith relax. A warm friendliness seemed to emanate from his slight frame. For the first time in three days, Keith was himself. Finally, Keith dared to ask the question. Do you think I'm insane, Reverend? Don't call me Reverend, Joshua Whitaker answered. Just call me Josh. All my friends do. He paused. Insane? You insane? Why, I don't think anything of the kind. But what about the voice? Keith protested. Sane people don't hear voices. They certainly do, smiled the little man. Why, I used to hear them myself once in a while. Of course, I heard the good kind of voices. My guess is that you're hearing one of the bad kind. Is this really true? Keith asked. You're not just saying this to make me feel better, are you? Why, of course not, Joshua answered indignantly. I wouldn't do a thing like that. Look here, I'll show you. Joshua Whitaker dug deep into his well-worn, faded coat and produced a much-read Bible. He opened it. When he found the right page, he looked at Keith over the golden rims of his spectacles. There, see, it's written here, in the Word. It just looks to me like you sort of got tangled up with one of those false prophets. If I were you, 
I'd be kind of proud, because if you're important enough for them to take an interest in you, then that machine of yours must be pretty important. Son, I wouldn't let them stop me from building it, no matter what happened. But how can I? Keith protested. I can't work. I can't think when that voice is in my brain. Oh, it can be done, the reverend smiled. I used to have a man in my congregation that had a wife who talked more in an hour than you and I both together have in our whole lives. He came to me and asked the same question. I told him that if every time she started to get on his nerves, he would say a little prayer, it might help. Do you really think that praying would stop the voice? Keith asked apprehensively. I wouldn't say that, Joshua Whitaker replied. The good Lord didn't come down and stuff a sock into that woman's mouth. She just went right on talking, just the same. But why don't you give it a try? At least it can't do any harm. Keith rose from his seat. There was new determination in his face. I'll do it. I'll do it, he promised. I'll finish my machine in spite of it. That's the spirit, Joshua Whitaker said approvingly. The little man walked down the aisle towards his pulpit. Keith stood in the doorway for a minute, looking at the tiny figure. Goodbye, Reverend, and thanks. The little man smiled broadly. Just call me Josh, and don't mention it. That's my job, you know, helping people. An hour later, it was a new Keith Eckert who knelt in the tiny laboratory. He was praying. The words tumbled over one another in their haste to be uttered. He straightened up. Grimly determined, he set to work. The voice was there, to be sure, howling and gibbering its absurdities, but Keith didn't give up. He kept working, his fingers delicately placed in the final parts. A drop of solder here, a tiny screw there. Little by little, it was nearing completion. The voice became louder and louder and louder. Then the music chimed in, beating, blasting, blaring. Through gritted teeth, Keith Eckert promised himself, I won't stop. I won't stop. I've got to go on. His whole body shook with the banging, crashing, snarling, screaming in his head. Every minute dragged by until even living was the sheerest agony. The whole world was a haze, a blur. The only reality was the machine and himself. The voice didn't exist, couldn't exist. With every beat of his heart, Keith mouthed, I won't hear it, I won't hear it. But he did hear it, he did hear it, and it grew worse as each instant passed. Perspiration ran down his face in little ticking drops. His fingers slipped time and time again until his hands were covered with burns from the soldering iron and tiny cuts 
from his screwdrivers. Everywhere his fingers touched, they left their outline in blood. Keith was praying again, almost babbling. Then he was working again. Without conscious effort, he put the parts in place. His mind didn't function except to try to shut out the noise. At last, there was only one small coil to be soldered in place, but try as he might, he couldn't place it. It just wouldn't hold. His desperate fingers clamped the coil to its mounting. The din in his head was truly unbearable. Each crashing beat of the cacophony felt like a numbing blow to his skull. Slowly, his free hand brought the soldering iron against the bits of metal. Held between the fingers of his other hand, he smelled the burning flesh rather than felt the pain. The noise prevented all sensation. Carefully, he relaxed his burning fingers. It held. The last part was in place. The machine was finished. The voice within his head screamed in terrible rage and shrieked a word whose meaning Keith did not know, but whose sound stiffened his back. Then silence. The voice was gone. The music, gone. The beating, gone. Numbly, Keith pulled the plug on the soldering iron, then fell face down on the floor, whimpering softly. Nearly an hour passed before Keith began to think again. He lifted his face and looked at the machine. It was graceful, symmetrical. The pain of his burned, lacerated hands was forgotten as he stared at it. He rose to his knees. A flood of triumphant joy swept over him. Quick on its heels was apprehension. Would it work? It had to work. Gently, almost reverently, Keith laid a large iron plate on the shiny, parabolic reflector of the gravity heme generator. Under his loving hands, the machine came slowly to life. As he gingerly moved the power control, the iron plate shifted slightly and lifted free of the reflector. It hung in the air, motionless, apparently held by nothing. Three hours later, bathed, shaved, and breakfasted, Keith stood across the street from the gray, dilapidated little church. Only it wasn't the same church. Gaping, broken windows stared at him blankly from its weather-beaten walls. Boards were heavily nailed over their inner sides. The little plot of grass was overgrown with weeds, which almost completely obscured the walk leading up to the entrance. Keith wasn't sure this was the place, yet it couldn't be. This church had obviously been deserted for years. Keith looked at the door. Goodbye, Josh, 
he said softly. And thanks again. From somewhere, maybe in his own mind, a soft voice answered. Don't mention it, son. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Don't Mention It by Dorothy DeCourcy and John DeCourcy, which was first published in Amazing Stories, Volume 20, Number 2, in May of 1946. Due to time constraints, the story was shortened. In the background was a mix of Charles Ives' String Quartet, Number 2, Part 3, The Call of the Mountains, performed by Emerson String Quartet, and John Cage's Three Dances for Two Prepared Pianos, Number 3, performed by Edmund Nyman and Nurette Tillies. As you can probably guess, the percussive portion was composed by Cage and the strings portion was composed by Ives. Both of these works first premiered in 1946, though Ives' work was originally written in 1913 to 1950s. 15. Ives did not gain notoriety until 1930, after he stopped composing, winning the Pulitzer Prize for music in 1947. So this was a performance that was right before he won his Pulitzer Now we are listening to Tuning Up, composed by Edgar Varez. In a little bit, I'll be reading Foundling on Venus by Dorothy DeCourcy and John DeCourcy, which was first published in Fantastic Universe, March 1954. Again, due to time constraints, I've shortened the story.
Venus was the most miserable planet in the system, peopled by miserable excuses for human beings. And somewhere among this conglomeration of boiling protoplasm, there was a being unlike the others, a being who walked and talked like the others, but who was different, and afraid the difference would be discovered. You'll remember this short story. Foundling on Venus by John and Dorothy Corsi. The foundling could not have been more than three years old, yet he held a secret that was destined to bring joy to many unhappy people. New Reno flung its sprawling, dirty carcass over the muddy soil and roared and hooted endlessly, laughing with the rough boisterousness of miners and spacemen rang with the brittle, brassy laughter of women following a trade older than New Reno. It clanged and shouted and bellowed so loudly that quiet sobbing was never heard. But a strange sound hung in the air, the crying of a child, a tiny child, a boy. He sat begrimmed, by mud at the edge of the street where an occasional ground car flung fresh contamination on his small form until he became almost indistinguishable from the muddy street. His whimpering changed to prolonged wailing sobs. He didn't turn to look at any of the giant passers-by, nor did they even notice him. But finally, one passerby stopped. She was young and probably from the Federated States. She was not painted nor well-dressed. She had nothing to distinguish her except that she stopped. Oh my, she breathed, bending over the tiny form. You poor thing. Where's your mama? The little figure rubbed its face, looked at her blankly and heaved a long, shuddering sigh. I can't leave you sitting here in the mud. She pulled out a handkerchief and tried to wipe away some of the mud and then helped him up. His clothes were rags, his feet bare. She took him by the hand, and as they walked along, she talked to him, but he seemed not to hear. Soon they reached the dirty plastic front of the elite cafe. Once through the double portals, she pulled the respirator from her face. The air inside was dirty and smelly, but it was breathable. People were eating noisily, boisterously, with all the lusty, unclean young life that was Venus. They clamored, banged, and threw things for no reason other than to throw them. She guided the little one past the tables, filled with people and into the kitchen. The door closed with a bang, shutting out most of the noise from the big room. Gingerly, she sat him down on a stool, and with detergent and water, she began removing the mud. His eyes were horribly red-rimmed. "'It's a wonder you didn't die out there,' she murmured. "'Poor little thing!' Hey, 
Are you going to work, or aren't you, Jane? A voice boomed. A large, ruddy man in white had entered the kitchen, and he stood frowning at the girl. Women weren't rare on Venus, and she was only a waitress. What in the blue blazes is that? He pointed to the child. He was outside, the girl explained, sitting in the street. He didn't have a respirator. The ready man scowled at the boy speculatively. His lungs all right? He isn't coughing much, she replied. But what are you going to do with him? The man asked Jane. I don't know, she said. Something. Tell the patrol about him, I guess. The beefy man hesitated. It's been a long time since I've seen a kid this young on Venus. They always ship him home. Could have been dumped. Maybe his parents left him on purpose. The girl flinched. He grunted disgustedly, his face mirroring his thoughts. Stringing hair, plain face, and soft as Venus slime clear, though. He shrugged. Anyway, he's got to eat. He looked at the small figure. Want to eat, kid? Would you like a glass of milk? He opened a refrigerator, took out a plastic bottle, and poured milk in a glass. Chubby hands reached out for the glass. There, that's better, the cook said. Pete will see that you get fed all right, he turned to the girl. Could he belong to someone around here? Jane shook her head. I don't know. I've never seen him before. Well, he can stay in the kitchen while you work the shift. I'll watch him. She nodded, took an apron down from a hook, and tied it around her waist. Then she patted the sober-faced youngster on his tousled head and left. The beefy man studied the boy. I think I'll put you over there, he said. He lifted him, stool and all, and carried him across the kitchen. You can watch through that panel, see? That's Jane in there. She'll come back and forth. Pass right by here. Is that all right? The little one nodded. Oh, Pete raised his eyebrows. So you do know what I'm saying. He watched the child for a few minutes, then turned his attention to the range. The rush hour was on, and he soon forgot the little boy on the stool. Whenever possible during the lunch rush hour, Jane stopped to smile and talk to the boy. Once she asked, Don't you know where your mama and daddy are? He just stared at her, unblinking, his big eyes soft and sad-looking. The girl studied him for a moment. She picked up a cookie and gave it to him. Can you tell me your name? She asked, hopefully. His lips parted. Cookie crumbs fell off his chin and from the corners of his mouth, but he spoke no words. She sighed, turned, and went out to the clattering throng with laden plates of food. 
For a while, Jane was so busy she almost forgot the young one. But finally, people began to linger more over their food. The clinking of dishes grew quieter, and Pete took time for a cup of coffee. His sweating face was haggard. He stared sullenly at the little boy and shook his head. Shouldn't be such things as kids, he muttered. Nothing but a pain in the neck. Jane came through the door. It gets worse all the time, she groaned. She turned to the little boy. Do you have something to eat? I didn't know what to fix for him, Pete said. How about some beef stew? Do you think he'd go for that? Jane hesitated. I don't know. Try it. Pete ladled up a bowl of steaming stew. Jane took it and put it on the table. She took a bit on a spoon, blew on it, then held it out. The child opened his mouth. She smiled and slowly fed him the stew. How old do you think he is? Pete asked. The girl hesitated, opened her mouth, but said nothing. About two and a half, I'd guess, Pete answered himself. Maybe three? Jane nodded, and he turned back to cleaning the stove. Don't you want some more stew? Jane asked as she offered the small one another spoonful. The little mouth didn't open. Guess you've had enough, she said, smiling. Pete glanced up. Why don't you leave now, Jane? I can take care of things here. She stood thinking for a moment. Can I use an extra respirator? Can't take him out without one, Pete replied. He opened a locker and pulled out a transparent face piece. I think this'll tighten down enough to fit his face. She took it and walked over to the youngster. His large eyes had followed all her movements and he drew back slightly as she held out the respirator. It won't hurt, she coaxed. You have to wear it. The air outside stings. The little face remained steady, but the eyes were fearful as Jane slid the transparent mask over his head and tightened the elastic. It pulsed slightly with his breathing. Better wrap him in this, Pete suggested, pulling a duroplast jacket out of the locker. Air's tough on skin. The girl nodded, pulled on her own respirator. She stepped quickly into her Duroplast suit and tied it. Thanks a lot, Pete, she said, her voice slightly muffled. See you tomorrow. Pete grunted as he watched her wrap the tiny form in the jacket, lift it gently in her arms, then push through the door. The girl walked swiftly up the street. It was quieter now, but in short time, the noise and stench and garishness of New Reno would begin to rise to another cacophonous climax. The strange pair reached a wretched metal structure 
with an askew sign reading El Grande Hotel. Jane hurried through the double portals, the swish of air flapping her outer garments as the air conditioning unit fought savagely to keep out the rival atmosphere of the planet. There was no one at the desk and no one in the lobby. It was a forlorn place, musty and damp. Venus humidity seemed to eat through everything, every metal, leaving it limp, faded, and stinking. She walked down a hall, fumbling inside her coveralls for a key. At the end of the hall, she stopped, unlocked a door, and carried him inside. As an afterthought, she locked the door, still holding the small bundle in her arms. Then she placed him on a bed, removed the jacket, and threw it on a chair. I don't know why I should go to all this trouble, she said, removing her protected coveralls. I'll probably get picked up by the patrol, but somebody's got to look after you. She sat down beside him. Aren't you even a bit sleepy? He smiled a little. Maybe now you can tell me your name, she said. Don't you know your name? His expression didn't change. She pointed to herself. Jane. Then she hesitated, looking downward for a moment. Jana, I was called before I came here. The little face looked up at her. The small mouth opened. Jana! It was half whisper, half whistle. That's right, she replied, stroking his hair. My, but your throat must be sore. I hope you won't be sick from breathing too much of that awful air. She regarded him quizzically. You know, I've never seen many little boys. I don't quite know how to treat one. But I know you should get some sleep. She smiled and reached over to take off the rags. He pulled away suddenly. Don't be afraid, she said reassuringly. I won't hurt you. He clutched the little ragged shirt tightly. Don't be afraid, she repeated soothingly. I'll tell you what, you lie down and I'll put this blanket over you, she said, rising. Will that be all right? She laid him down and covered the small form with a blanket. He lay there watching her with his large eyes. You don't look very sleepy, she said. Perhaps I had better turn the light down. She did so, slowly, so as to not alarm him. But he was silent, watchful, never taking his eyes from her. She smiled and sat down next to him. Now I'll tell you a story, and then you must go to sleep, she said softly. He smiled, just a little smile, and she was pleased. Fine, she cried. Well, once upon a time, there was a beautiful planet, not at all like this one. There were lovely flowers and cool running streams, and it was only rained once in a while. You'd like it there, for it's a very nice place. But there were people there who liked to travel, to see strange places and new things. And one day, they left in a great big ship. She paused again, frowning in thought. 
Well, they traveled a long, long way and saw many things. Then one day, something went wrong. Her voice was low and soft. It had the quality of a dream, the texture of a zephyr. But the little boy was still wide awake. Something went very, very wrong. And they tried to land so they could fix it. But when they tried to land, they found they couldn't. And they fell and just barely managed to save themselves. The big, beautiful ship was all broken. Well, since they couldn't fix the ship at all now, they set out on foot to find out where they were and to see if they could get help. Then they found that they were in a land of great big giants, and the people were very fierce. The little boy's dark eyes were watching her intently, but she went on hardly noticing. So they went back to the broken ship and tried to decide what to do. They couldn't get in touch with their home because the radio part of the ship was all broken up. And the giants were horrible and wanted everything for themselves and were cruel and mean and probably would have hurt the poor shipwrecked people if they had known they were there. So do you know what they did? They got some things from the ship and they went and built a giant. And they put little motors inside and the things to make it run and talk so that the giants wouldn't be able to tell if it was another giant just like themselves. She paused, straightening slightly. And then they made a space inside the giant where somebody could sit and run this big giant and talk and move around and the giants wouldn't even know that she was there. And they made it a she. In fact, she was the only person who could do it because she could learn to talk all sorts of languages. That's what she could do best. So she went out in the giant suit and mingled with the giants and worked just like they did. But every once in a while, she'd go back to the others, bringing them things they needed, and she would bring back news. That was their only hope, news of a ship, which might be looking for them, which might take them home. She broke off. I wonder what the end of the story will be. She murmured. For some time, she had not been using English. She had been speaking in a soft, fluid language unlike anything ever heard on Venus. But now she had stopped speaking entirely. After a slight pause, another voice spoke in the same melodious alien tongue. It said, I think I know the end of the story. I think someone has come for your poor people and is going to take you home. She gasped, for she realized it had not been her voice. Her artificial eyes watched, stunned, and the little boy began peeling off a skin-tight, flexible baby mask, revealing underneath the face of a little man. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM. 
Santa Barbara, 91.9, and I'm Hannah Wolf. That was an abridged version of Foundling on Venus by Dorothy DeCourcy and John DeCourcy, which was first published in Fantastic Universe, March 1954. Just to say a little comparison about the two stories that we heard, the first story was the first book that they had, first story they had published in 1946. And in that book story, the only mention of a woman is in passing in a story about a woman who speaks too much and in the second story a woman is the main character and she's seen as the uh, kind of savior or of a race of people and also a giant so she's kind of a very different portrayal of women over the course of these eight years of them writing together In the background, you've heard Milton Babbitt's Three Compositions, performed by Robert Taub, Igor Stravinsky's Concerto in D for String Orchestra, number one, Vivance, performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Herbert von Karajan. After that, there was Ernest Krenick's Piano Concerto Number 3, uh, OP 107, performed by pianist Mikhail Korchev, and the English Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Kenneth Woods. Lastly, what we're hearing right now is Lucinio Burrios' fun for violin, viola, and Viocello, performed by Francisco de Orzio, Alessandro Tempiri, and Mara Bali. This has been Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Have a good morning. Wednesday, March 14, 